Brooklyn, where you can make beads, simple beads at home, and then trade them for someone to come over and, and start a small fire in your apartment that you share with nine others. Artisanal cheeses for sale on the street of an entire American borough. It's, it's like Marrakesh over there. Seriously. Let's tweet about it. Oh, what a good rant. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Robert Smith. Today is Friday, April 6th, and that was Brian Williams from NBC News. You heard at the top, ranting about the New York Times discovering Brooklyn. Today on the show, we too will go on a voyage of discovery. We're going to go to Brooklyn, we're going to go to Texas, we're going to go to Wisconsin. We will eat artisanal beef jerky, meet high-priced nannies, and we'll raise money in a gym in Texas. It's a collection of our recent radio stories, all on offer after the Planet Money Indicator. Today's Planet Money Indicator, 120,000. The U.S. economy added 120,000 jobs in March. Uh, This is according to the big monthly jobs report that came out this morning. And let me just say, this is a disappointing number. We we need to add about 100,000 jobs a month just to keep up with population growth. Over the past few months, we've been doing much better than this. We've been adding somewhere around 250,000 jobs a month. Economists were predicting something much better than what we got this month. So 120,000, it's a disappointment. You know, it bugs me how we have to measure everything by some sort of predictions. And I, and I know that economists will always predict things. And, and as news reporters, we will always say what the predictions are. But clearly, when it comes to the jobs number, they don't know what they're talking about. And it always seems to either disappoint or be higher than they thought. Why predict it all? It's a good question. I mean, there's this whole sort of machinery of news and prediction that we're inevitably part of. And and it doesn't make a lot of sense in a certain way. And you can say even more than that. You can say not only is it a mistake to try and predict this number, it's even a mistake to make too much of the number after it comes out. And I'm certainly, you know, as guilty guilty. of that as anyone. I come in here and do an indicator twice a week. You know, we treat this number like this single solid fact, like the economy added 120,000 jobs in March, period. But remember, this number, it's based on a survey. And like all surveys, this survey has a margin of error. And The Economist had a really smart post this morning pointing this out. And and this post was saying the survey that gives us this number has a margin of error of about plus or minus 100,000 jobs, which is huge. So to really understand what this month's jobs number means... We need to wait a month or a couple of months and see, like, is this a weird blip or is it the start of a downturn? We really won't know for a while because you can only read these numbers in sort of the long arc. I love that even when we criticize making too much of the number, it just makes us want to hear the number more in a month. It does. It does. (laughs) And this is a good survey over the long term. You just got to look at the long trend. Oh, it's so hard to do as a reporter. It's hard. All right. On to the show. It is a gorgeous spring day in New York City and around much of the country today. And so today, we're going to get out of the office. We're going to head out into the world to illustrate a few essential economic points using real people in real places. All four stories we're going to play today were heard on the radio version of Planet Money, but they are new to the show. Our first stop is Brooklyn, where, Robert, you and I both live. And I can tell you from experience that that stuff that Brian Williams was ranting about at the top is all true. The the whole do-it-yourself, artisanal, everything green market, everything flea market is for real. You will go to a street corner and literally see someone 
selling pickles that they made themselves in their homes with some sort of arty label, or you'll find some sort of weird product crocheted that you never thought could be crocheted. That actually is Brooklyn. And it's easy to make fun of. I, I will give you that. But, but Adam Davidson, our very own Adam, also lives in Brooklyn, we should say. He noticed that these craft-making hipsters actually represent, he's getting bold here, actually represent the future of American manufacturing. One day, Chris Worley decided to finally leave his corporate job and pursue his dream to become an artisanal food craftsman. And so every day at home, he'd basically pickle stuff. I had a, a refrigerator full of plastic food buckets that were full of pickles and kimchi and sauerkraut and harissa and salsa and ketchup and mustard and, you know, any kind of craft food you could make. Chris Worley lives in Brooklyn, where shops are filled with handcrafted, grass-fed, organically raised whatever. Too much of it, in fact. Every time Worley had a good idea, he found eight other companies were already making precisely the same kind of mustard or pickled radish. You don't want to play a marketing game where it's just like, let's outmarket the other pickle people. Eventually, though, he and his partner found a hole in the market, all-natural beef jerky. Kings County Jerky was born. Two guys, a small warehouse in Brooklyn, and 25 pounds of beef a day. Food manufacturing, from a small shop like this one all the way up to those huge food conglomerates, add up to big business, well over half a trillion dollars a year. And the Kings County approach is a model for how all manufacturers can do better. Ignore low-priced commodity products. Focus instead on customizing high-quality goods for a select audience willing to pay a premium. It works even on something as simple as a spring. Springs are critical to the day-to-day -day functioning of everybody's lives. Steve Kempf runs Lee Spring, which makes, no surprise, springs. This telephone has a number of springs in it, from the buttons to the, to the uh, hang-up device. The stapler uh, has several different springs in it, from the uh, spring that... Steve uh, listed that off all the springs in his office for four minutes. We timed him. My eyeglasses have springs. Our audio recorders have springs. And each of those springs has to solve a slightly different problem. You take this wrench here, for example, and it's got a, a very unique L-shaped spring design. And so the product designer wants to come up with an elegant design. And he also has a, a very specific force he wants when you, you let go of this wrench so that it opens in your hands and feels comfortable. Think of this as an artisanal craft wrench. And a craft wrench, of course, needs a craft spring. This is good business, by the way. Companies will pay more for a spring that precisely meets their needs than they will for some off-the-rack spring. Incidentally, it makes spring manufacturing also a lot more fun. The puzzle solving is what I love to do. Okay, if you don't have a puzzle for me, I tend to get bored. Juan Delgado is a coiler, and when he started here 35 years ago, Lee mostly did make standardized springs. Same thing every day. Now, each day, there's a surprise. A regular spring, let's see if I find, there's a regular compression spring. This is boring to me. Then he pulls out this crazy cone-shaped spring. This, I look forward to things like this. Just look at the gorgeous way the coils taper and don't tangle when you press down. Making something like this cone-shaped spring, that requires knowledge, artistry. In other words, it's a true craft. Craft jobs typically pay more, so Juan does better than someone who doesn't have all those spring skills. Even big manufacturers like Toyota, General Electric, Dow Chemical 
are focusing more of their business on custom-making products for customers willing to pay more. It's one of the best alternatives to competing with China and other low-wage countries, which have perfected the commodity business of turning out lots of identical products as cheaply as possible. Our very own Adam Davidson, from Brooklyn now to Wisconsin, to a school district there. Back during the heart of the financial crisis, we told you about five school districts in Wisconsin that had borrowed nearly $200 million. And uh, this was a sad story we told you at the time because they used this money to invest in some really complicated financial instruments. I have to look here. They're called synthetic collateralized debt obligations. And not surprising, given what we know now about synthetic collateralized debt obligations, those investments became worthless. The school districts filed a lawsuit to try and get back some of the money and now, three and a half years later, the lawsuit has wrapped up, and David Kestenbaum has an update. The paperwork for the investment, that alone was three inches thick. The original document. Whoa, that's a huge book. Sean Eady showed me this back in 2008. He runs the finances for the Whitefish Bay School District. Yes, this is the closing document. Did this thing actually come in the mail? And then it just went on the shelf over there? Actually, it's too big to fit in the shelf, so it was, it's been on my floor since... <laughs> Edie said he and the other school districts were misled, weren't told what they were buying. They thought they just bought some boring corporate bonds. The story of these Wisconsin school districts, it's the story of the financial crisis. You got a complicated financial instrument. You got people who lost a lot of money. The school districts had borrowed $200 million and basically lost it all. And then you had everyone pointing a finger at someone else. Sean Edie remembers his kids picking up a newspaper. My two youngest... Um read uh, an article in the paper that was calling, you know, uh, you know, these empty-headed people who invested in this should be fired and that type of thing. And, you know, that's, it, it breaks my heart. I sort of kind of get choked up. Now, three and a half years later, Sean Eady has not been fired. He still has his job running the finances for the school district of Whitefish Bay. And for the school districts, the story has a happy ending. They are off the hook. They don't owe $200 million anymore. Now, debts don't just disappear. The money has to come from someone. And as with a lot of stories from the financial crisis, the money came from all over the world. The first place it came from was the investment bank that helped put the deal together, the Royal Bank of Canada. It reached a $30.4 million settlement with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The second place the money came from was the brokerage firm in St. Louis that helped sell the thing to the schools, Stiefel Financial. The third place that took a loss, a German and Irish bank called Depfa that loaned a lot of money to the school districts. And just to be clear here, though these places all kicked in money, none of them accepted any blame. So officially, no one was responsible for a $200 million investment that ended in disaster. When the last settlement came through, C.J. Krofcheck, a lawyer for the school districts, called everybody with the good news. Was there dancing in the school hallways? Not really. There was a surprising amount of uh, numbness that had kind of developed over the years where I don't necessarily think it completely sunk in as it was happening, and I'm not sure it sunk in yet. And as for the guy you heard at the beginning, Sean Eady, the guy with the huge stack of paper, he explained the news to his kids as best he could. Kids don't often sit and have conversations on CDOs. Um, <laughs> trying to get into the details of this particular transaction wouldn't be very fr fruitful in my house. I don't know that the kids would even understand how this all strings together. The strings go further than you might imagine. That German bank that loaned the school districts the money, it got taken over by the German government. 
which means German taxpayers, German parents, in part, are bailing out schools in Wisconsin. Planet Money's David Kestenbaum. Today on the podcast, we're getting out of the office. We're bringing you four stories from around the nation that aired on the radio, on our radio feed, but are brand new for the show. Our next stop, one of your favorites, Jacob, Texas. Uh, I do have a don't mess with Texas mug. (laughs) You know, it's always good advice. As our listeners may recall, uh, Alex Bloomberg has been working on a special project with Andrea Seabrook. She's NPR's congressional correspondent. They've been digging deep into the way money works in Washington, D.C., and how lobbying works and how fundraising works. And it was just on This American Life, an entire show about campaign finance. But this is, this is something that didn't make that show that we wanted you to hear. As part of this project, we gained rare access to fundraising events, inside the fundraising events hosted by a very powerful member of Congress, Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi. And NPR's Andrea Seabrook, she tagged along and will bring us the inside view. Democrats love Nancy Pelosi. Republicans hate Nancy Pelosi. And it's for the same reasons. She is incredibly good at her job. And a huge part of that job is raising money. In the last decade, Pelosi has raised close to $300 million for Democrats. That's according to her political staff. So far this election, she's raised close to $40 million. Pelosi is the party's top fundraiser by far, in some categories outpacing President Obama. And that takes time. How many fundraisers do you typically go to in, say, a given week? A lot, yeah. I mean, they're on the phone or attending events and... Uh... But I think they've said this year I attended, what, 400, almost 400 fundraisers in nearly 40 cities. If we go down this path in the House of Representatives, there's only one outcome that we will accept. Victory. Winning. 400 fundraisers in the year 2011 alone. Fundraisers like this one in a packed community center in San Antonio. I followed Pelosi on a nonstop money-raising swing through Texas. Two days, five or six events, three cities. Now, you might have an idea in your head of what these things are like, but there's actually a pretty wide variety. There's this kind, regular folks in a municipal gym. You don't have to pay to get in here, but staff does pass out envelopes. On the other end of the spectrum, a fancy private dinner in the home of Stephen Mostyn. Look at this house. Do I need to buy another Ferrari out there? No, it's ridiculous. There is a Ferrari out front, along with a couple of BMWs and a Bentley. Inside the sleek dining room, the crowd is smaller but swankier. It's a gospel theme with a singer and big feathered hats. Pelosi seems to love most of these people personally, giving shout-outs to big supporters, but she gives just about the same stump speech. Of course, your health here tonight means a great deal to us. With your help, we were able to outraise the Republicans. This is unthinkable. 
This is the biggest event of the trip. In just an hour or two, Pelosi pulls in some $300,000 for Democrats. Mostyn, the guy with the Ferrari, is a wealthy trial lawyer. And oddly enough, he gives millions to the Democrats because he wants them to raise his taxes. I actually started to put a sticker on that Ferrari out front that says, uh, bought for by the Bush tax cuts, but I thought I might get killed because I didn't realize it was, you know, irony, you know what I'm saying? It's a strange dynamic. Going to these things, I meet a lot of people who hate the outsized influence money has in politics. And so therefore, they're putting a lot of money in politics. It's too much. It's just too much. It needs to be restricted. I believe in restrictions. I think there should be restrictions. Uh, But us on the Democratic side have decided that until we can get to that point, we must at least allow enough money for the Democrats to communicate. We won't go to a baseball game without a bat. We don't want to unilaterally disarm. we got to fight fire with fire. Insert your preferred metaphor here. The irony is, the Republicans say exactly the same things. They can't just sit pat while Ferrari-driving trial lawyers throw cash at Nancy Pelosi. And so it goes, on both sides. That's NPR's Andrew Seabrook. Our last stop on today's show... New York City, to a different kind of ostentatious display of wealth, high-end nannies. Yeah, the average nanny makes about $30,000 a year. But in New York City, there is an elite core of nannies who make much, much more. And this next story came about when Adam Davidson was looking for a nanny for his own young son, Asher. He and his wife were out looking for nannies, and he discovered this whole world, this microeconomy, where some nannies make an incredible amount of money. And Adam Davidson, being Adam, wanted to look at this through an economic lens, and now he takes us into that world. I'm sitting in a conference room with Zanadi Munatan, a short, middle-aged Brazilian immigrant. We're talking sort of seriously, and then I ask her, why is she one of the best nannies in the business? Instantly, she transforms. She has this huge smile. She says she knows how to make everything fun, even homework. I said, come on, let's do the homework first because after that we can put a play together. We can all dress up and I dressed up with them. This joyful ease with kids has a surprisingly huge market value. I'm meeting Munitan in the offices of the Pavilion Agency in New York, which specializes in placing house staff with the richest folks in the country. And they told me you're one of the better paid nannies. Yes, I am. Yeah. So what does that mean? Like, that means it's over $150,000 a year. Actually, I learned later, it's a lot more than $150,000 a year. Her last job paid $180,000, and it included an apartment on Central Park West, rent-free, a generous food stipend, and bonuses and perks that brought her total income closer to $250,000 a year. That's eight times the salary of the average nanny. Cliff Greenhouse, who runs the nanny business for Pavilion, says all their nannies are good with kids. They have perfect references, no criminal records. That's just the basic stuff. They also need other special skills. One nanny, a man actually, got a job because he knew how to drive a Zamboni and the family had a private ice rink. Another family would only hire a nanny capable of ferrying passengers on a 32-foot-long motorboat to a private island. But perhaps the hottest skill these days is the ability to make friends with other well-placed nannies. A lot of families, especially new money, uh, are really concerned about their children getting close to other very affluent children. Um, How do they do that? They find a superstar nanny 
who already has lots of other nanny friends who work with other high-profile families. And there you have it. This is crazy, really. That is. And, and that's a phenomenon that I see quite frequently. The biggest thing these high-end nannies are selling is their entire lives. One of the perks of great wealth is never having to worry about other people's schedules. Rich families that pay six figures to a nanny, they just go to dinner if they feel like it or out to the airport, get in their jet and fly off to Europe. They don't check to see if the nanny is free. The nanny better be free. Lauren Green, another top-level nanny, says her friends gave up on making plans with her because she would always, always cancel. The hardest thing for me is canceling on people. And it's at this level with the families that I work for. It's a constant. It happens all the time. And it's I've learned to deal with it, but it is very difficult for me because in my own life, I would never stand people up or cancel appointments <laughs> 10 times before we make it to the doctor's office. But... Um, it kind of happens in this circle. She told the folks at the Pavilion Agency that she, rather surprisingly for a time like this, is looking for a job that pays less money. My goal for this next job is 85000 I My last job with overtime, I was making well over 100000 a year, um, but I had no personal life with that position. For any nervous parents out there who can't afford these high-paid nannies, do not fear. I did call some child development experts who reassured me. The high cost of elite nannies does not in any way imply better care for your kids. If you're willing to hire a nanny who actually has a life and can't introduce your kids to the children of the rich and powerful, you can still have a great one for a far more reasonable amount. As always, we would love to hear what you think. If you know about any strange worlds you'd like us to visit on our next radio road trip, let us know. You can email us, planetmoney at npr.org. Or visit us almost anywhere in the digital universe. You can visit our blog at npr.org slash money. You can follow us on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook. You can find all the music we play on the show on Spotify. And now you can see all of our fantastic new graphics on our Tumblr planetmoney.tumblr.com. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening.